Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode. I am here with Joshua, Dr. Joshua Sijuade. Um, but before I get going, I, I've had a couple people, enough people ask me recently if I could make a podcast version of my YouTube channel. And I had to tell them that there already is a podcast version of the YouTube channel. All you need to do is search in your favorite podcast app for Transfigured, whether Apple or uh, Spotify or, or whatever, and you should be able to find it. So just a, a public uh, service announcement uh, that it, if you like listening to podcasts on YouTube because it's easier while you're exercising or whatever, just know that you can already do that. So, um, but okay, uh, getting into today's show, I'm really excited to talk to um, Josh. Josh has a PhD from the University of York. Um, he I really feel like uh, I won't flatter you too much, but I feel mm -hmm. like you're probably an up and coming uh, big deal uh, is, uh -huh. is what I, I get the impression. I think you're doing a lot of interesting work in sort of apologetics and defending the Christian faith, but you also have a particular interest in questions around the Trinity and you've done a lot of work in that. And that's kind of mostly what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so, uh, Josh, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, uh, where you're from, how'd you get interested in these topics? Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Um, yeah, so, uh, it sort of always starts with my sort of personal journey that's sort of tied with my academic journey as well. And so, um, when I was 19 years old, I had a religious experience, which completely changed my life. Um, so I was brought up as a Christian, but I wasn't really, you know, actually caring about Christianity, dragged to church, that sort of thing. Uh, but then when I was 19 years old, which was 10 years ago, I had a religious experience. Um, and from that experience, my whole life completely changed. Um, my mind and everything was completely transformed and regenerated in a way. And I just fell in love with scripture and I fell in love with Christian theology. And I felt I wanted now to devote myself to understand more about God and about what he's revealed of himself. So I decided to go and study theology um, at the London School of Theology. Um, and then from that, I went to go on to further academic postgraduate study. Um, really, when I was at um, LST, I, I just fell in love with philosophy, philosophy of religion, apologetics. Um, and I just felt I wanted to sort of focus more on that. And so I went and studied um, for a uh, master's at Birmingham. Um, and that was in philosophy of religion. And then I went into do a PhD um, in philosophy, focusing specifically on the Trinity. Um, and yeah, so it was sort of a, it, it was really a, a life-changing moment with that religious experience that completely changed my whole path because I, I was prior to that I was planning to play American football which is strange I'm living mm -hmm. in England living in England with a so, so how, how did you get yeah. how did you get interested in American football I, I so I originally was playing rugby um so I loved rugby up until about 14 years old and then I can't remember how I fell into it it might have been watching the NFL on on television or it might have been I can't remember the the specific uh, reason but I just discovered American football and then went to my local sort of team and we, we there is sort of an up-and-coming league which is quite a good league in in England and then in Europe and so I got sort of involved in that when I was 14 up until about 18 19 and I was very serious about actually wanting to go and, and play in America um, but then it was just once I had that religious experience just everything completely changed um, not so much saying that I didn't like sport anymore but because I'm still in love with sport but I just felt 
I had a sort of a different calling that I, I needed to focus more on sort of trying to, you know, more understand more about God and, and doing as much as I can to help people understand about God. Um, but yeah, what, just what, sort of, what position uh, were you uh, interested in? I was, in I was a running back. Uh-huh. I was one of those ones who yeah. liked to truck people and, and all those sort of things. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, running back and uh, yeah, a little bit of receiver sometimes, so slot receiver and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I love the sport and I still love it. But um, I just felt my direction in life was sort of more academic writing stuff. And then which which American team is your favorite to root for? So I, I so I'm I, I'm a big Kansas City Chiefs fan. Hmm. Um, I am I, I know it's it's people might be thinking oh Glory Hunter because they were doing really well, but they actually did really bad at the moment, um, which is really <laughs> Glory surprising. Hunter. Is that like an yeah. English way of saying it's fair, like, we- fair weather fan? Yeah, no, it's like so, someone who's supporting like the best team. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, but I always well, I, I did love them prior to to Patrick Mahomes. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. And then sort of having Patrick Mahomes just made me fall in love with them more. Sure. Um, but generally I'll watch, I, I love America so much. I watch all the games and I'll sort of root for any team. Uh-huh. Um, it's sort of that, but, but generally it's normally Kansas, uh, Kansas city who is sort of my, my main team that I, I support. Gotcha. I I'm from Chicago, so I'm a, a Bears oh, okay. fan, but, uh, it's been pretty miserable going yeah. being a Bears fan recently. I, I it's think, just... <laughs> yeah, you, ha- you have, I'm um, so Justin Fields, a quarterback. I think he's, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I would say generally, the, I don't think you have a very good head coach and general manager. No, um, yes, I think yeah. that's right. And, and they're trying to move their stadium right now. Yeah, yeah. I wish the governor of Illinois would just be like, look, guys, you need to get at least into the playoffs, preferably yeah. into the Super Bowl before yeah. we'll even talk about letting yes. you move your stadium. Yeah, yeah. Focus yeah, on no. football and being a good team. And, yes, then, we yeah. can, and then we can have the discussion until yeah, then, yeah. <laughs> you exactly, know, exactly. get your head in the game. So. Exactly, um, exactly. My my wife's yeah. from Wisconsin, and she's a Green Bay Packers okay. fan, which is oh uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would never admit that I'm a little bit jealous, but uh, yes, maybe, yeah. maybe I am. And so we're we're exactly. we're gonna let our children decide which of which okay. of those two things they want to root for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so awesome. so yeah, yeah. So you so you had your religious experience. You you yeah. um you studied. You got you know undergrad, masters, PhD. Um, mm-hmm. And so what, what's your sort of spiritual life and, and transformation been like since then? Because um, uh, we were talking just before the mic came on that you're uh, Catholic now and, it, yeah. and you, yeah. it sounded like you were Protestant for a while. So, yes. so what was that like and what was your thinking with regards yeah. to that? Yeah, so um, yeah. So I was, as I was saying, I was brought up in a Christian home and, and my, my family are Protestant and so sort of charismatic Protestants. So that was sort of the background that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until about three years, uh, three years ago, that I sort of just started thinking about the reason why am I a Protestant? I mean, what what are the good reasons in, in favor of it? Um, and I'm sort of someone who uh, I just have to get to the bottom of a question until, and it just won't leave me and it will be a big problem in my mind until I, I solve it in my mind. So I just felt for three years that I really need to, to understand this better. And I, I just felt over that three years sort of journey that the evidence in my mind sort of was pointing more towards um, more the, let's say the, the historically uh, founded mm-hmm. churches in that you find Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy and, and Catholicism. And so then over three years, I was sort of thinking about which sort of, which form of Christianity that I believe conformed more to the evidence. And so it was- Did you think set, much about yeah. the Anglican church being in England? I, I did, but I just felt that there is just a discontinuity with 
the the tradition of the church in in the things that they they're sort of promoting at the moment and and the way that it's structured um and so for me it's sort of uh, I'll probably bring him up a lot, but someone, uh, Richard Swinburne has played a massive influence in sort of my thinking and the way I sort of do theology. And I was actually reading his book called Revelation, which is a, a very um, underappreciated book, but I would actually say it's one of the best books he's ever written. Um, but he just sort of tries to give this criteria for assessing which church is the church that we identify as. Um, and I think he was giving this criteria of saying, well, what we should say is that there should be continuity and connectedness in doctrine and organization with the original church. So however, the way the original church was organized and what they taught should be what the church is teaching and organized like now. And so if there isn't that, then you have to say there's discontinuity and you can't really say that that body of people represent or are the church which was historically founded. And so with that sort of criteria in my mind, I was sort of applying that to the issue with with Protestantism and, and Catholicism and, and Eastern Orthodoxy. And I just felt, even though I, for me, it's like a, it's like a, a boxing match with a 12 round fight and, yeah. and it gets to points, you know, at the end, it's not even a knockout, but I felt with the Orthodoxy and, and Protestant issue, uh, sorry, the Orthodoxy and Catholic issue, it was just sort of at the end, I just felt more inclined towards Catholicism. Um, but I, I have a open heart towards orthodoxy i'm very interested and a lot of my theology probably sounds more orthodox and catholic in, in certain ways um, mm -hmm. yeah 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 so speaking of sounding a little bit more orthodox than catholic in certain ways mm -hmm. um let's let's talk about sort of your understanding of the trinity um you've you've spent a lot of time focusing on the trinity i think uh, i remember you saying uh whether uh, maybe you were you said this to parker said a case or they'll tell you i don't remember that you were really trying to defend and kind of bolster richard swinburne's argument for the trinity and then sort of came upon the work of Bo Branson um, uh, and uh, regular listeners of uh, this of my channel should, will recognize Bo Branson. I think he's been on here more than any other guest. Um, but uh, tell me what yeah. what what you liked about his model and, and yeah. what you found appealing. Yeah. So originally, I, I was my PhD. Um, I originally actually was going to for my PhD. I was, I was going to do something on Swinburne's work, but I wasn't that certain what I wanted to do. Um, it wasn't until later in my PhD. Um, it's quite strange that so my PhD thesis was written in like a year because um, I was for about two of those years. I was saying I want to do this topic, want to do that topic, want to do this topic, and I wasn't settled until about a year. I then decided I wanted to do something on the Trinity um, on Swinburne's work just because I felt it wasn't as addressed. Um, as much um, and so yeah when for that that sort of thesis I was focusing on on defending Swinburne's model of the trinity against a, a I would say probably the most important objection against it is just a tritheism objection which basically just says that the you know the trinity as he conceives of it is just three gods and mm. because it's three gods it's not monotheistic so it doesn't fit within uh, sort of the the orthodox form of uh, trinitarianism which is affirmed by the councils and so what i sought to do in that that thesis was just to say okay let's take this objection and let's try and ground firstly the objection upon a historical form of tritheism because that term gets bandied around a lot people just say oh, i was tritheistic but what does that actually mean and why why should tritheism be problematic and so what I felt to do was actually let me go and do some historical study and, and look at tritheism. And then I, so what I did, I grounded my, the objection upon a specific philosopher 
a slash theologian um, in the fifth century called John Philoponus, who was an out and out um, tritheist. He's probably the, the best representation of tritheism. And he was condemned by, um, if I'm correct, I think it was the sixth ecumenical council. They actually declared him a heretic. And so I said, okay, let's take his form of tritheism as the standard of tritheism, given that it was um, deemed heretical by a council. Um, so I took his form and I said, okay, is Swinburne's model of the Trinity actually tritheistic in the sense that um, John Philoponus's is? And I showed actually when we understand it correctly and if we make certain modifications, it's not. Um, and then that was the first half of the thesis. And then the second half of the thesis was trying to say, okay, given that it's not tritheistic in that sense of the word, can we class it as monotheistic? And so what I sought to do then was to say, okay, let me look at the pro-Nicene trajectory of the fourth century and say, okay, what did they mean by monotheism? And so what I what I sort of discovered in doing this is that there was at least three understandings of monotheism, that there's one God because there's one father, there's one God because there's one nature, there's one God because there's one trinity. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was saying basically, actually, Swinburne affirms all of those things. It's just that we don't really understand that correctly when, or we haven't really understood it correctly. And so I tried to show actually it does. And when we modify his model, it does actually fit with these things. So at the end of the thesis was saying, actually, Swinburne's model is not tritheistic, but it fits with all the forms of monotheism. So it should be classed as a viable model. And so when I was doing that, I was, you know, I stumbled upon that first sort of form of monotheism, which was the idea that the, the, the one God is the father. And so that sort of when I was researching that, I, I just it was it was just completely like light, lightning bolt moment where I, I realized, oh, my gosh, because I never encountered that before. Yeah. I, I, I'd never heard of that before. I, I always thought, you know, when I was reading the history of the church, that, that that sort of view was just subordinationism. It was problematic and it should just be thrown away. But when I looked deeper into the work and it was actually Del Tuggy's, um, it was Del Tuggy and his um, one of his podcast episodes where he was uh uh, playing uh, the the, the uh, PowerPoint presentation done by Bo. Uh -huh. um, yeah. yeah, I think that was yeah. over a few episodes that I actually encountered. So, oh my gosh, this is actually a live option. Mm -hmm. And then I started reading further into uh, J John Bear's work. Who, yes, he has yeah. A really, yeah, really good work on on the Trinity, where he was defending this view. And then I started just delving further into the Fathers, specifically the Cappadocians. I was like, actually, Cappadocians are talking in this way. And so I just, I just said, oh my gosh, this is, this is, seems to me to be the way to sort of pursue this idea of the Trinity, given that it's grounded upon what the Cappadocians were saying, who were so influential in uh, at Constantinople at, at 381, and also it fits with what we're, what we understand um, to be the nature of God in the, in the Trinity. Because when I looked at it, I was actually actually correct. I do agree with people like like Dale that it doesn't seem to be that the 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 the, the Bible teaches a you know, a tri-personal God, mm -hmm. um, but it does identify the one God with the father. Um, and I think we'll probably get into this more, but it's just, yeah, I just felt that this, when I was researching that this view of the Trinity just conforms with scripture, conforms with historical tradition, and it's philosophically coherent in that it doesn't face these logical problems uh, that the other models face. So it was just, yeah, it was just a great experience. And I was happy that I sort of fell into it because it's, it's the view that I sort of hold to at the moment. Mm -hmm. So we, we can say that um, Dale Tuggy's uh, podcast helped you be a better Trinitarian. <laughs> oh, 100%. I, I really, yeah, 100%. I, his, his podcast is great just because it even, 
it's just a great platform for different views that you I, I have never heard of and, and other scholars to bring in their work. So yeah, it was really helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I won't tell him that. Um, yes. yeah. <laughs> but but could you could you describe um, monarchical Trinitarianism in a little bit more detail? So yeah. so what is what is the model? How does it work? And you know maybe what makes it a little bit different from yes. sort of yeah, yeah. more uh, common conceptions of the Trinity? Okay, yes. Yeah. So monarchical Trinitarianism is is basically the idea that there are three divine persons in the trinity the father the son and the holy spirit the son and the spirit are consubstantial with the father in that they share the same nature as him yet the one god is numerically identical to the father mm -hmm. so what you have here is sort of two affirmations the first affirmation is that there are three perfect persons who are equal in their nature. So there's no ontological subordination when it comes to their nature. They're the same in that sense. No gradations of no divinity. Gradation, no gradations yeah. of divinity. Mm -hmm. But what there is a distinction specifically to be, to be made is who bears the name God? Who is the one God that we speak of who grounds monotheism as well? And that is upon the Father. So there's three divine persons, Father, Son, and the Spirit, yet the one God is the Father alone. Um, so for me, that's sort of the nutshell um, picture of, of monarchical Trinitarianism. And now how this is different is from, I think, sort of Bo uses the term, which is helpful, the egalitarian view. Um, but it's just basically the view that the one God is numerically identical to the, the Trinity itself. So the three persons as a collective, they compose the one God. Um, so the one God is tripersonal, he's Trinitarian. Um, mm. And I would say that's the common view, but I, I personally won't say it's the traditional view. And I think that distinction isn't always made. And so some people say, but, you know, this is when they hear the, the egalitarian view, they'll say but that that's the doctrine of Trinity. I would say that's the common understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, but I wouldn't say it's a historically grounded understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, specifically yeah. when we look through the creeds and things like that. So it's it's basically if you ask who is God, the answer is God is the Father. The Father is God. But if you ask which persons are God in terms of what they are or who is divine, then you get the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so so how does um, the Father get this sort of special place? What what makes him? unique enough to be the only one that's God in terms of who he is and in, in that nominative yeah. sense. Okay, so um, just first sort of just taking a step back to, to understand the distinction. Um, so the way I see it is that God as a term is an ambiguous word in that it can mean multiple things. I would say in pro-Nicene Trinitarianism, which is the, the, would say the orthodox understanding of Trinitarianism, um, that, so that's the Trinitarianism forwarded by Nicaea at 325 and, and Constantinople at 381 and then affirmed by the other councils, is that God can be used in at least two ways, as a predicate slash adjective yeah. or as a, as a name, so the nominal mm -hmm. sense. And so each of the persons have the, the word God in a predicative sense in that they are each equally divine. So God used just basically as, as the term divinity is equally applicable to them. But the one God has the name, sorry, the one God as a name in the nominal sense is the father. Now, why the father has that name and the son and spirit don't is because I believe the word or the name God uh, in the nominal sense has certain conditions attached to it. And that is being divine, which the son and the spirit are, but the second one is being fundamental or being alternate. So mm -hmm. they're sort of synonymous terms. So 
the father is the fundamental divine person or the ultimate divine person. And what I mean by ultimate and fundamental is that he is, I use the term grounding, but just going with the tradition, traditional understanding, he is uncaused. So nothing brings him into existence and he is the cause of everything else. Mm-hmm. He's the, the cause of all that, all created reality, but he's also the eternal cause of the sun and the spirit. The sun and the spirit are not ultimate because they are not uncaused. Okay. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because they are not the cause of everything else, because there's one thing that they don't cause, which is the father. Mm -hmm. So they lack ultimacy, they lack fundamentality. And so I would say that's why they can't bear this name God. Now, I would personally say um, this fundamentality sort of ultimacy distinction with the word God is I so with I, there's distinctions I think we can have with Bo and myself is that I haven't seen Bo argue in that way so I, I when I'm saying monarchical trinitarianism this is the way I would understand it mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if Bo would affirm this as well but the way I see it is that the word God applies to the Father because He is the fundamental divine person I know someone like Bo would say it's probably a similar thing because He is the uncaused cause mm-hmm. but I, I use the term fundamental and I think. For me, that gets the point that we're saying, who is the ground of existence of everything? Whatever is the ground of existence of everything is God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a bridge that can also be shared, be crossed by someone like a Muslim and a Jew and someone else who's not a Trinitarian, because they could say, yes, well, I agree with you. Whatever is the fundamental thing, the thing which is at the bedrock of reality is, is God and the God, not not a God, but the God. And so what I'm trying to say is that that's the same in the Trinity. There is Hotheos, the God in the Trinity, and that is the Father alone, because he's the fundamental divine person. He is at the bedrock of reality. Um, and the Son and the Spirit aren't. So the Son and the Spirit are derivative persons. They're mm. derivative divine persons. That means that they are non-fundamental. They come from something else, which is the Father. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that I, it makes sense. Um, that I guess uh, maybe a quick question that, that some people who aren't familiar with this view would ask is, wait a minute, isn't that what Arianism was? Isn't that the, the whole thing that we are trying to reject? So what, how, how would you defend or define your view in, in contrast to Arianism? Yeah. So I definitely won't say, it definitely say is it's definitely not Arianism. Um, Arianism, properly so you know properly called, we would say is the view that Arius defended, um, who, as contemporary scholarship has shown, actually didn't play that big of a role in the fourth century. Yeah, uh, but I mean, his, his yeah. name just got slapped. Yeah, on the yeah whole thing, exactly. But, but I think it's wasn't. all yeah, it's <laughs> Athanasius's fault. But, but yeah, um, so I think yeah, Arius was affirming the idea that this, the the son is ontologically subordinate to the father, that they do not share the same nature. They are not consubstantial. They're not homo. They do. They, there is no homoousios between them. Um, and then what you see later on. Uh, someone like Eunomius um, and Aetius, who are sort of, I would say, actually better theologians than, than Arius and who actually, who are, you know, more problematic than Arius, where they are saying that, yeah, that the father and son are unlike in their nature. They are not homoousios. Um, but what the monarchical model says is that, no, they are homoousios. The father, son, and spirit share the one divine nature. There is no distinction between them in that sense. Arius will not say that. Arius will say, no, they are different. The same way, not the same exact same way, because for Arius, the son was greater than humans, but the same way I am different from the father, 
um, is all uh, different from God in general, is the way that someone who's Aryan would say is that we have a different nature. The son had a different nature from the father, but Trinitarians don't say that. Um, and so uh, monarchical Trinitarians. And so what I would, I give an analogy, analogies are always not helpful because they break down, but I, I just look at a family, for example. So if you had a father, a human father and a human son, now a human father and human son are equal in one sense and they are not equal in another sense. They're equal in the sense that they share the same nature. They are human and there's no mm -hmm. distinction there. There's no subordination in their nature. I mean, that's why, you know, if you put your put your son to live in, the, you know, put in, a, put in a shed in the garden and gave him dog food, you're going to get your kid taken away from you because you're right. treating him as a subhuman. But if you do that to a dog, you're not going to have that taken away from you because there is a distinction in the nature. But where there, where there um, isn't a distinction is in the human nature, they share the same nature. But where there's a distinction is relationally. A father is relationally superior to the to a son, and so that's why it will be normal for a father to go and say, "Clean your room." But if your son said, "Hey, dad, go and clean your room. It's a little bit untidy. <laughs> it's going to be a bit strange." Yeah. Um, or you know, all those sort of things. So mm -hmm. the understanding is that you can have distinctions and even a hierarchy, but there can be different forms of hierarchy. Ones that are problematic, ones that are not problematic. Ontological, um, an ontological hierarchy in the Trinity is problematic, and that is Arianism. That's what Eunomius and others were defending. But what someone like a monarchical Trinitarian is defending is that of a relational hierarchy. The Father is relationally superior to the Son in that he is the cause or the ground of the Son's existence and the Spirit as well. And so that's why he has that relational superiority. Um, but there is no ontological distinction between them. So there's a subordination of a certain kind, but not yes. of, a, of a different sort of kind. Exactly. subordination in terms of, of role and function and obedience and and the cause the the explanation for why the son is obedient to the father is that the son is derived from the father but not vice versa and you could say the same for the spirit but it's not that um the son is grade b divinity while the yeah. father is grade a divinity or something like that yeah. which is I think closer to what Eunomius and, and yes. the extreme Arians would have been trying yes. to explain back in the day. And yes. another distinction, I think, between Arianism and non-Arianism or Nicenism uh, it would be the creator um, distinction or the creator creation distinction, right? Where the, the Arians wanted to say the sun is caused and created, but you're making a distinction between what it means to be created and what it means to be have derive your, your being. So could exactly, you yeah. could you explain how, how that works a little bit? Yeah, so um, so I would say that there's a distinction between what I would say eternal generation and creation. Mm -hmm. um, the main distinction is not even the relation being different it's so much that there is something called you know, that there's a, a will involved in it. So creation um, is simply something that stems from the free will choice of God. God freely chose to bring about creation. But where there's a distinction with the Son and the Spirit is that there is no free will choice there. That it's not a, it's not something that stems from an act of will. It's an act of essence, and the Father brings about the Son because it's of His nature to do so. So it's a it's a metaphysically necessitated act. Mm -hmm. uh, something like creation is not. So you cannot say that the Son and the Spirit are created just because they come from the Father eternally. Because I would say creation involves the will of God. And so there's a distinction there um, to be made. And so 
yeah, even if it's because I, I normally cash it out with grounding, which we'll probably touch on. Um, so even if the I, I would say God grounds the existence of of created reality like myself, I'm grounded in existence by God and God also grounds the sun's existence. Um, but there's a distinction in that the grounding of the sun is something which is necessitated, but the one of the, the of creation is not. It's a free will choice for God to do that. And, and creation isn't eternal either. Right. So, yeah. so there's this distinction of necessary versus voluntary, right? Um, the son is necessarily generated by the father, whereas creation is uh, uh, active will of the father. And the son is eternally generated by the father, whereas creation is temporally created by yeah. the father. Yeah. But what, what's interesting though, is I've got a very, um, <laughs> I don't know, it's not controversial, but I, I've got a paper coming out within the next week or two weeks. Where, How do you have yeah, time for all Yeah, this? I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know. Um, but yeah, I've got I've got a paper coming out um that's it's not to do with the Trinity, it's to do with theism in general. And I'm trying to show how someone can affirm um classical theism and neoclassical theism at the same time. Um, and the yeah, straight like, people can think, how is that possible? <laughs> um, but yeah, what I mean by classical theism is a God who is timeless, um, immutable, impassable. And then neoclassical theism is a God who's temporal, passable, and um, is, is mutable. Now, I'm basically saying that if you, if you hold to church tradition, you have to affirm both. Um, you have to affirm the um, classical theism because the church has always taught that. And you have to affirm neoclassical theism because uh, the scripture teaches that. And so I'm going to say, well, how do you do that? And I should give a model um, philosophically. And I use the work of David Lewis and who put forward this idea of modal realism. Um, now, modal realism is very it's sort of controversial view in philosophy, but I, I actually do affirm it. Um, but what's quite interesting, why I brought it up here is because it also um, means that you have to hold to the world, all the possible worlds being necessitated. So they exist out of necessity. Now that's quite strange. Okay, then, so yeah, so then yeah. you're going to have to make creation somewhat kind of necessary. Yeah. So create. So the way I sort of get a get it's a long paper. So that's why I, you were getting uncomfortable. As I, as yeah. I was no, no, that's what I'm the, saying. Yes. So so with this paper, if I'm committed to to the, the thesis that I'm furthering, is that actually this paper does argue for creation being necessary, all created reality being necessary. But where, where I sort of had the contingency is that in sort of the modal realism that I'm sort of defending and developing in a way um, is that all of creation is necessary, all the possible worlds. So David Lewis held to this view that all the possible worlds, which philosophers normally use the term, they are concrete worlds, they actually exist. So the world we exist in, which includes our universe and everything else that could be outside of it, that's one possible world and there's many other possible worlds which are exactly like ours and they exist. Um, but basically, Lewis held to all of these possible worlds being actual, but what there are some developments that people have made to modal realism where all these worlds exist, but they are not actual. So basically, the way that I hold to it is that God, God's creatio ex nihilo act is not him bringing about a possible world because they've always existed, but it's him actualizing a possible world. So a, a possible world becoming actual. So even though they exist, they are not actual. Now it gets very <laughs> complex. So, so, what, yeah. so actual, what, yeah. what's the opposite of actual? Is conceptual or something? No, like? so just merely possible. So yeah. it's quite, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite 
I think it's good for the the paper to be read, sort of to digest right. what Lewis said. Because <laughs> I know, because I mean, I, I unpack a lot of what Lewis said and what the development says, but it, there's a distinction that's made by the philosophers who defend modal realism um, that something can exist, but still not be actualized. So mm -hmm. even though it exists, so the way I've sort of made sense of that, because I spent a long time trying to think through what is the difference between something existing and being actual. So there's an analogy I thought in my mind of like, you know how you can have like a book, for example, or you can have a script. So the script exists, but it's not actually something yet. It's not actually a movie. When then the, the filmmaker, the director, the producer gets a script and says, okay, let me get some actors and make this actually into a, a film, it's then this actualization. So what I was thinking is like- right, Like the, a blueprint turning into a- Yeah, house. so the merely yeah. possible worlds are there, but they've not been actualized. Only one mm -hmm. of ours has been. Okay, so I mean, this sort of has taken us uh, away sure. from what we were talking about. But, but what I was just trying to say is that um, the view that I am defending in this paper that some people, some of your listeners might end up reading um, later on is that actually there is a way to hold to the world being necessitated, but there being some contingency there. Um, and some people might though say, but how does that, how's that distinction between the sun and, 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 you know, the created reality given that they're necessitated, but at the end of the day, yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk about that another time, but it's just, sure. yeah, just interesting. All right. That, yes. th that opens up a bunch of boxes, but I, I might yes. not, I might not yeah, uh, yeah. Fo follow yes. them, but what, one thought it did bring to mind is um, that when I, I talk with Bo, there's, yeah. um, there's not only the sort of philosophical theological model of monarchical Trinitarianism, but it sort of also is closely followed by a, a hermeneutical method of how to read the Old Testament. You were talking about the difference between sort of a um, classical theism and neoclassical theism, where classical theism has this kind of more abstract, kind of perfect, unchanging God and, and neo, uh, neoclassical um, theism has sort of a more interactive, personal, kind of in the world-ish kind of God. Yeah. And, and when, I, when I read the, I, I'm, I, one of the other series I have on my channels is going through the anti-Nicene yeah. fathers, and a lot of them, they will split those two gods between the father and the son. Mm -hmm. They'll basically be like, the father is the classical God, right? He is, you know, above everything, unchanging, you know, we can't see him, he's unapproachable, yeah. right, etc. And sort of the God who is interacted with is the son, right? And that's part of part of the benefit of the model is we can have one cake and the other cake too, as long as we sort of divvy those responsibilities between the father and the son. So when like, you know, God appears in the Old Testament, like say to Moses on Mount Sinai, it is the son who is interacting with Moses on Mount Sinai, whereas the father is still aloof and unseen. And that's how you can handle some of the kind of confusing parts of scripture. Where it's like, well, no one can see God. No one can see my form and live. No one has seen God, you know, et cetera. But yet there's some times where it kind of seems like people see God, uh, sort of like Moses on Mount Sinai being a particular example. And so Bo will do the thing. Well, the God that you don't see is the father, right? Because he's invisible and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the son is the God that, that you can see. And so you can kind of divvy up these sort of hard to reconcile characteristics that way. Um, but as far as I can tell, that, that's sort of unique to Eastern Orthodoxy, whereas Catholicism, and mainly I think because of Augustine, he 
he thought that that made the sun not divine enough, I, as, as far as I can tell, to sort of divvy up the responsibilities that way. Because it's mm -hmm. like, well, wait a minute, being visible or invisible, that seems like an essential trait. And if the son and the father are supposed to have the same essence, why could one of them be visible while the other is invisible? Why could one of them be impassable while the other is passable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, well, no, we need to have those theophanies be angels. And so what's interesting is biblical Unitarians make theophanies angels, mm. um, right? Like it was an angel who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was an angel who wrestled with Jacob, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I, I'm wondering how you handle, uh, do, do you follow Bo in that sort of hermeneutical method of having the son be basically the agent of uh, interaction for uh, on behalf of the father in the Old Testament, or do you kind of more closely follow Augustine, Augustine, to have kind of angels be the interaction between humans in the Old Testament? Yeah, um, I probably would affirm the, the latter, so Augustine, um, just because I, I, I need to sort of hear Bo out on this issue, but if it's just sort of as you were presenting it, um, that will be problematic for myself. Um, or I think for anyone who affirms the consubstantiality of them, because the idea is that they share the same nature, that nature would be composed of uh, essential properties. And so if the father has the essential property of being timeless, um, mm -hmm. the son then has the essential property of being temporal. Um, for me, that seems to be, you're talking about two different natures there because they, they are not compossible. You can't have them together. You can't have a nature that has a timeless element and a, a temporal element or an impassable element and a passable element. Um, and so for me, that will be problematic. Um, I am happy though going with Bo and saying that I do believe the son fulfills the role of revealing the father. Um, and so if we have these idea of these theophanies and things of these appearances, um, I am happy to say that it is God, sorry, it's Christ, yes, Christ or it is an angel. Um, why I would say it's Christ is because his role as the son is to be the revelation of God. And so if God is speaking to a prophet, he's revealing himself to that prophet, that's to be fulfilled by the son, because that is um, something that he fulfills within the role of the son. Um, but I would have a problem. But even the son yeah. is interacting with an angelic sort of intermediary or something like yeah. that. No, I mean, if that's someone affirms that because they want to have, is that because they want God to be timeless and not sort of in our temporal sort of realm or something? Well, like that? Cer certainly yeah. Justin Martyr and some of the early church fathers would do something like that, but they were probably mm. a little bit too far in an Aryan direction, I would say, for a, a pro Nicene to be comfortable with. Um, I, I think Justin Martyr even calls the son created and and has like calls him a second god and, and Justin Martyr is a pretty clear pretty sharp distinction between the father and the son but part of that is so that he could have the son doing all these sorts of things that he didn't think it was befitting of the father to be doing yeah yeah um, but but I guess sort of so how do you imagine like Sinai working or, or who did who did Jacob wrestle with I, I would say it's I'm happy to say it's a son uh -huh. um, but it wouldn't be for that I mean the reason of the father not being able or not you know, not it's not befitting yeah. of him yeah I, I wouldn't say that's the reasoning my reasoning would be because that's his role his mm. role is to reveal God and so any sort of interaction with God is a revelatory 
interaction. And so that would then be fulfilled by the son. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do affirm a strong view of perichoresis in that the father and, and spirit are interpenetrating the son. So there are, they are involved in that act as well. So it's not like we can divide them, but the one who's the prime sort of um, actor or, or the person who's active in an interaction with us is the son because of his, his role as the re- revelation of God. Um, um, sure. Sure. So, that's probably sure. my reasoning behind it. Why, why I would have the sun, but I'm happy to say it's an, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm not too fussed about if it's an angel or not, but if it, if it is supposed to be mm-hmm. God, I would say it's a son because of his role as the revelation of God. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so more of a, based off of a fittingness of role, what rather than like a fittingness of personal characteristic or something like yeah that. yeah yeah yeah, I, yeah 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 because yeah there's there's some part where justin martyr is mocking the the jew that he's uh trifo the jew that he's having a dialogue with he's like you think the god of all things could actually came down here and interacted with us how silly he could never do anything like that that's okay. so far beyond him and so far above him yeah you know he's uncircumscribed how could you be in a particular place yeah. that only the sun could do something right it's more like mm-hmm. it's a it, it not that it's the role of the son to do that but it's it's uh mm-hmm. scandalous to assume yeah. that the father could do something like that, yes right? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I guess another question that I have before I kind of want to maybe move back over into the, your recent paper on, on grounding is, is the question of worship. This is something that, that I've interacted with Bo a little bit on, and I'm curious for your answer is that even if I could, I, I kind of understand why you can say that monarchical Trinitarianism is monotheism. Sometimes it seems to me like, monotheism with a slight uh polytheism flavor <laughs> but but i'll grant that i i monotheism I, light or something or monotheism, monotheism light yeah light, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but one of but perhaps a a more pointed problem might be what i would call polyolatry i guess or something mm. like that where it seems like you have more than one person being worshipped and like, you know, just to uh, put a slight scriptural uh, point on the or edge on the point, like when Satan is tempting Jesus, Jesus says, you know, uh, you should uh, uh, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, right? That's one of his reasons why he, that, that's his scriptural defense, why he won't bow down to Satan, right? I won't bow down to you, Satan. You should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And as far as I can tell, Jesus isn't talking yeah. about himself. Um, so how, how would you answer the question that even if I will grant you that monarchical Trinitarianism only has one God in it and counts as monotheism, it seems like you're worshiping three. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say you, you are worshiping um, an additional divine person uh, to the Father, so the Son and, and the Spirit. Um, but the way I sort of understand it is that even though we're worshiping the son, we're worshiping the son um, in a in a means to worship the father. So <laughs> yeah. for me, in a way, I, I feel like all worship is always given to to the father. He's and the ultimate given, destination yes, of yes. worship. So yeah. the worship, even though we are worshiping the son, we're worshiping the we're worshiping the father through the son. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's how I sort of understand how worship is done. So just something I'm I'm focusing quite on. At the moment is the work of Larry Hurtado, who I think yeah. has done yeah. great work. And I, I love Larry Hurtado. Yeah. yeah. 
And this idea of sort of this cultic veneration of the son or of Jesus, sorry, and this idea that this dyadic devotional pattern, um, which sort of was was there from the beginning, sort of allowed there to be a high Christology. But but I think the only way that if if Hurtado is correct on this on these points is that the only way that Paul and the other um, first century Christians could have affirmed their view as monotheism and and be worshiping the sun is because they had this idea that it wasn't even though it's a dyadic devotional pattern this devotional pattern was always directed to the one god through the sun so we are for example you know hatado would say that there are six six sort of features of this cultic veneration they had of the sun so that would be prayer so they'll pray they'll invoke the son's name, they'll baptize him in his name, they'll, they'll have the sacrificial meal of the Lord's Supper, they would sing hymns and psalms and prayers, um, and, and sorry, and praises, and, and they'll also have prof prophetic oracles given uh, through the son. But when I've actually looked into this, and what Hurtado is arguing is that, I mean, all of this was always done with the father, attached to the to the notion it wasn't really ever that they were just doing this and jesus by himself it was always that they were praying but they were praying to 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 uh to god but through through jesus or they were invoking jesus's name so that something could be done by the father or they were baptizing in the name of jesus but that was baptizing in the name of the father the son the holy spirit so my my understanding is that the worship that we give to the son is a is a form of worship but it's the worship that we are then channeling to the father ultimately so and yeah I'm, I'm interested also to see how sort of a unitarian for example i don't know if unitarian will affirm something like that and say yeah you know, there I, yeah. I i've heard kind of three unitarian uh, this is honestly yeah. a question that that unitarians uh, argue about amongst ourselves if you get us all together this is a topic that will uh, yeah. ca cause yeah. us to to dispute one another. Yeah. I, I think that there are kind of three main answers. Um, there's sort of some Unitarians who just bite the bullet and say, Jesus gets worship too. Uh, you know, this yeah. is what's revealed. We're dealing with, you know, we're, we're just going to deal with it. And honestly, I think that's what Dale Tuggy says. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mean to be misrepresented, but I was listening to you talk with him uh, just a couple of days ago again, and I'm pretty sure that's what he said. And I, I've, I've talked with him. I think that's what he means. I just think that perhaps he doesn't have a sharp enough definition of worship. Um, that, that might be one of my points to him. There's some Unitarians who will say pretty much exactly what you just said, that, that the father is the ultimate destination, but the son is somehow like a conduit of worship to the son then ripples up to the father in its ultimate sense so mm -hmm. there, there are some Unitarians who, who will be like you know actually you, you put it very well Josh I, I could um, yeah. but but what I actually think is the right answer and what I what I think is how, how I understand it is something like a worship veneration distinction kind of like if I were to bug you and be like hey it looks like you're worshiping Mary and you'd be like no there's a distinction between worship and veneration we give high honors high veneration you know hyperdulia I think is is the mm. the Latin phrase um, to Mary but we don't give her worship we only give worship to say the Trinity and I actually think that there's something like a worship veneration distinction and I think that that Larry Hurtado's weakness, like um, Catholics will pray to Mary, right? Um, with the ultimate prayer being up to the Father, but in some sense, you know, you know that that's how prayer to saints works, right? You kind of pray to the saint, but it's also asking the saint to pray to the Father in the ultimate sense. 
Um, and you, there's, you know, the Ave Maria, which is a song to Mary. Um, she will get invoked in liturgy. I was, I, I was at a Catholic funeral last weekend for, for my uncle. My mom's side of the family is Catholic. Uh, I'm pretty sure I heard Mary get invoked in a liturgy um, and, and those sorts of things. But yet Mary isn't being worshipped. And I think that the Eucharist meal is to be understood that Jesus is the offering, not the recipient of the offering right? Jesus, you know, the bread and the, the wine, the body and the blood are what is being offered to God, the Father. It's not that Jesus is the recipient of the offering. He is both the high priest and the offering itself to God. So he's not the recipient of cultic worship. He is a co-participant with us in the uh, cultic worship of God, the Father. I think that's, that, that's how I would articulate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think with yeah, with this sort of idea of, um, so with Hurtado, uh, why, why I, I, I sort of favor what you're saying is, is I don't think he would say, even though there's one element might be done, you know, prayer might be done to Mary, these things, for example, prayer, invocation, baptism, Lord's Supper, hymns, praises, all these sort of things, as a collection were offered up to Jesus. And so as a collection, that is worship. So even though there's one element that might be offered up to Mary, so it could be prayer, she's, the Lord's Supper is not done in her name. So I think the idea was not so much Christ, you know, it being offered to Christ, but it be done done in his name, because Hitado is trying to say, well, if we look at the sort of Roman era Judaism, and you had messianic figures, you had, um, you had, you know, prophets, or you had certain individuals who were leading uh, the Jews, there was never this form of cultic veneration and devotional pattern in this sort of way of their being their names being invoked in worship settings. Their, 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 the initiation into the, the fold of Judaism being through and in their name. So baptism mm -hmm. for Christians, the Lord's Supper being done in their name. I mean, so all these sort of things was like, there is a distinction being made between this individual and everyone else. And so even though some people like for Catholics would say, yes, we can offer up prayer to Mary. We, there are certain things which are no go areas that a Catholic would say, you cannot do this. And mm -hmm. so, but these things can be done to Christ. And so as a collection, these six things that, that Hurtado sort of puts forward would say, that's what worship is. And that worship is done to Christ or the father or whoever alone, but it's not done to another human figure, um, specifically Mary or someone like that. Yeah, and and I, I see the point. And I think even I uh, go beyond what a Catholic would do with regards to Mary and what I'm willing to say or do with regards to Christ. Um, so uh, it's like a even more hyper form of, yeah, yeah. of dulia. But I think it's, you know, all of those things, I guess I would understand and explain by virtue of Christ's role and, and, and uh, status at the right hand of the Father. Um, but at the end of the day, I still think that Jesus as our high priest worships the, uh, God the Father, and we worship God the Father with him. And Jesus is the sacrifice, not the, the recipient. And I think that that sacrifice really at the end of the day is sort of like at the heart of, of what separates who gets worshiped from who is just getting high and super high honors. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, but, but I, you know, I understand, I, I, I can understand and respect your point about um, kind of worshiping the son as a way of worshiping the father. And, you know, Philippians 2 kind of says that, you know, every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think at previous times in my life, if I'm honest, I would have given an answer more like yours. I, I, I guess I've just been evolving a little bit. But um, let, let's, um, let's shift focus a little bit and talking about your kind of new paper on, yeah. uh, it's called Grounding Eternal Generation, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, yeah. clever. Um, <laughs> so, so, what, uh, so um, what are kind of the two main um, criticisms of eternal generation? That, that you are addressing in this paper? Yeah, so this paper, um, I specifically was focusing on, this is sort of a development of my previous paper um, that I wrote for religious studies, which was building the monarchy of the father. I have these sort of weird, catchy catchy, um, yeah. catchy titles, but um, yeah, sort of because in that first paper, I, I started trying to put forward this grounding model of, of eternal generation, um, but I didn't really go deep into it. And I felt that there was more that could be said and there's distinctions to be made in the grounding of the father, sorry, the grounding of the son and the spirit. And so in this paper, I decided to focus on sort of what are these two issues that people, I mean, amongst other things, what are two issues that people would, would focus on? Or three issues actually. Um, so oh no, it's two, sorry, two issues. Yeah. So the first one is intelligibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one is this monarchical sort of issue. Yeah. Now, the intelligibility is that a lot of people will just say, well, eternal generation doesn't make sense because you're saying there is a being who's generated there must be this temporal sequence so how could they eternally be going through this temporal sequence before and after um and so people just say it just doesn't make sense um and then the second sort of issue was which i I think i called the monarchical issue or something like that which was sort of saying okay let's say we go with eternal generation as understood um by let's say the latin Pro-Niceans and then the Roman Catholics, which is the idea of the affirmation of the filioque, then it seems to negate the monarchy of the father. And this was an objection which um, sort of off uh, off camera that people would bring up to myself saying I'm Catholic, mm-hmm. well, how can you do that and affirm the monarchy of the father? So it's something I felt I wanted to address. And so I said, okay, let me look at these two issues. Um, is there a way to make sense of eternal generation in a way that we can conceptually understand it uh, without saying mystery? Because I think mm-hmm. that... That, that card gets pulled too early and I don't think we have to. Um, and then is there a way to sort of deal with this monarchical issue that the father can still be the sole um, source of the existence of the, of the son and the spirit. Um, and yet there still be this processional relation in some sense from the mm. son, um, the spirit mm. coming from the son. And so the way I sort of dealt with the first issue of intelligibility was saying, okay, let me utilize a very sort of, um, it's sort of a, 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 po- a very popular notion at the moment in contemporary metaphysics, which is called grounding or metaphysical grounding. Now, this is sort of, let's say, around 2009 or so, um, this sort of term grounding. It was used before, but it sort of caught on through the work of a person called Jonathan Schaefer or Schaffer um, in his work. Uh, ooh, just, yeah, what, what grounds what? I think that's the paper, if I remember. What Grounds What, which was written in 2009. And then you had Kit Fine, who's a very um, prominent metaphysician. Um, and he defended grounding in a, in a paper, which is part of a, a big volume on grounding called a Guide, Guide for Grounding or Guide for, for Ground. So these two papers were very important. Um, and there was another paper written by Gideon Rosson, 
um, which I think is called metaphysical dependence. So if anyone is interested in sort of deep philosophical things, uh, which is not necessarily related to <laughs> theology, these are sort of the three main papers that were written around the same time, so 2009 to about 2012. Mm-hmm. And so then from that period of time- But not, down, not, not about the Trinity. They, not about the Trinity at all. So yeah. this is just, just philosophy. Yeah. And so then grounding in sort of metaphysics, general philosophy just caught, caught on fire. So it's one of the main things that people are looking at at the moment. Now, myself, the, the sort of academic sort of line of, of, of writing and thinking that I go um, go under is sort of a philosophy of religion. Mm-hmm. The way I understand philosophy of religion, so I wouldn't really class myself as a theologian. So textual mm-hmm. stuff, all those sort of things, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. great with it. I, I have to depend on, on other people. Um, but philosophy is sort of my main thing. And so philosophy of religion, the way I understand it, is utilizing the tools and techniques of contemporary philosophy to help clarify the meaning and provide a justification for religious claims. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to clarify what does religious, what are these religious people saying, and can we justify what they're saying, utilizing the tools of general philosophy. Yeah. And so that's what I've tried to do in a lot of my work, or all of my work, is always utilizing some form of general philosophy to help clarify a theological issue um, or justify it. And so I sought to do that with the notion of eternal generation. I felt, okay, this is a very sort of complex issue and it's something that a lot of people say, you know, how can we make sense of it? And I felt that there's actually been great work that's been done already in contemporary philosophy, which can then be brought into Trinitarian sort of um, discourse. And so I utilize this notion of grounding, specifically Schaffer's view of grounding um, found in his work. And I also used another guy called Jonathan Lowe, um, who is not, so when you do read it, there's a few footnotes. So, so Lowe doesn't defend grounding. Um, he classes his view as ontological dependence, which is different from grounding. But what I do is basically say, actually, I feel his view is actually something called, it's grounding. It's, it's not an ontological dependence. And, and Lowe mm-hmm. passed away in around 2013. So he never really caught on with this grounding thing. So anyways, I take Jonathan Schaefer's view of grounding and then Lowe's view of Um, identity or ontological dependence and I say actually when we bring these notions together we can help clarify what we mean by the generation of the son the spirit Um, Mm. also just a a point of clarification terminology wise I use the term generation in sort of an unconventional way because normally people just use generation for the son Um, but I felt the term procession just it's not very helpful and it can be a little bit difficult when you're writing. So I just use generation for the sun. And right. Because histor- historically, yeah. orthodoxy used two different words for those yes, two different yeah, uh, yes. relations. Yes. You're using so, the same word, but but you're not trying to change yeah. the meaning. Yeah, 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 I'm not. So I do. I normally qualify and say begetting and procession. So that no. will be begetting for the sun and procession for the spirit. But, but those are within generally the, within the family generation. Of, generation. Yeah. 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 Um, So yeah, so the way sort of what I do then in trying to make sense of this is saying that we can use the notion of grounding and grounding at a general level is just basically this idea that there's a relation. This relation has certain features. Firstly, um, it's asymmetrical. Um, That means that if, for example, X grounds Y, Y does not ground X, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's no sort of mutual dependence there. So it's directed in a way. Um, but also it's it's irreflexive so if x grounds something it doesn't ground itself so it's it's Mm -hmm. something that can't ground itself it's transitive as well so if x grounds y and y grounds z then x grounds z 
um, and it's necessitating. So when X grounds Y, X necessitates the existence of Y um, or the identity of Y. And so what, what I do um, in the paper is saying, okay, taking this relation, popular relation, so not some esoteric thing, but a popular relation which metaphysicians would affirm, and we can bring it to this sort of discussion. And I, I sort of do more of an original thing because the I changed my view of I I changed my view a little bit from the building paper. So in the building paper, I just use Schaffer's view of grounding, but I didn't bring in this idea of identity. So what I do in the paper is try and say at the beginning, I take grounding, the term grounding, to be a um, a family of relations. So grounding is not one relation, it's a family of relations. And within that family, you have two specific relations, a relation of direct dependence, direct dependence, which is Schaffer's view, and a view of identity dependence, which is Lowe's view. Now, this hasn't been done in other works, so it's sort of original to this article, um, but it's not something that's not defend defensible. I think it is defensible to take grounding to be a relation that's, sorry, to be a, a genre of different relations that fall within it or a category that different relations fall within. Um, and so there's these two relations which are grounding relations and I call the, the direct dependence relation E-grounding for existence grounding and the identity dependence relation I-grounding for identity grounding. Yeah, it sounds almost yeah. like you're working for Apple, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> advertise, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so what, what I'm doing there is trying to say that these two relations have two different notions related to them. So you have this E-grounding relation being the idea that whatever, if X E grounds Y, X is grounding the existence of Y. Y mm -hmm. exists in virtue of X. But then if X is, ground, is I grounding the, um, the identity of Y, um, the identity who, uh, who X, uh, sorry, who Y is, is dependent upon what X is. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's a dependence of existence and there's dependence of identity. And so what I then say is, and going through all of sort of the technical, moving over the technical issues, is that I then say, okay, the way we can understand eternal generation is that the begetting relation and the procession relation are different. Mm -hmm. And how they are different is that the begetting relation, so the father begetting the son, is that of him e-grounding the son, so grounding his existence, mm -hmm. and him also grounding the identity so it's it, it's both e and both I. both yeah. e and i in that in that yeah. begetting yeah. so the identity and the existence of the son is wholly um contingent upon the father mm -hmm. but then the procession relation is a little bit different the procession relation is a relation where the father e grounds the 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 um the the spirit, the spirit. yeah but the i grounding of the spirit is shared between the father and the son so and that, son, that's that's also how you could help distinguish the the yes, son and the spirit because yes. that was that was always a, a problem yes, with exactly. monarchical trinitarianism right they have to have two different kinds of grounding or else it becomes yes. hard to distinguish 
the son yeah. and the spirit, right? So exactly, yeah. because if the father, you know, eternally generates someone who is just like him and mm-hmm. eternally generates someone who is just like him, yeah. how are they not the same? What, yes, what distinguishes yeah. Yeah. them, right? Yeah, and I think, yeah, so if I understand the Cappadocians, and I think Bo defends similar a similar position as that, which is just something that we can't really conceptualize and understand or hasn't been revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I it's think- It's an again, ineffable, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think before we-, we again pull that card i think let's try and find out what we can utilize to make sense of it and then if it's wrong then we can maybe go down that route and so yeah so, so, so this distinguishing yeah. between e and i grounding yeah. kind of helps it, it gives you a distinction to help talk about how you can preserve the monarchy of the father because he is the only one who can give existence right yes the yes. son the son's not giving existence to the mm-hmm. spirit yeah. But um, the son does have the ability to give identity mm-hmm. to the the spirit. So yeah. while so when the father is generating the existence of the spirit, the son and the father are co-identifying um, the spirit yeah. as both apart from the father and also keeping the spirit apart from the son. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I think. Just thinking about scriptural passages, we we see things like the identity of the spirit actually being related to the son because he gets called the spirit of Christ, for example. Um, And so with that sort of in mind, you can say, actually, it seems to be his identification is also that he's a spirit of God. So he's a spirit of God and he's a spirit of the spirit of the son. Um, So that identity, who the spirit is, seems to be dependent upon the father and the son. And so how I then, yeah, exactly as you were saying, how I deal with firstly the intelligibility issue is by saying, okay, the notions I'm using are notions which make sense. And this is a way that we can make sense of this, this notion of, of eternal generation, this idea of E and I grounding. So that deals with the intelligibility, intelligibility issue. But then the monarchical issues, it's, uh, this idea is exactly as you said, that we can preserve the fathers being the sole principle Mm-hmm. of divinity of existence of whatever um in because because uh that 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 is connected with the e-grounding power yeah because it's the e-grounding because mm-hmm. it's a, it's mm-hmm. only the father who e-grounds all you know the other persons the son does not play a role in that um but where the son does play a role is in grounding the identity of the spirit and mm-hmm. so that's the way i interpret the filioque um and for me as well just thinking about implications um this idea of sort of the distinction between should we have the filioque in the, the Nicene Creed? Could, could you define yeah. the filioque? I oh, yeah, presume sorry. 99% yeah. of people yes. who have gotten this far know what that means, yes. but just just in case, just to help. Yeah, out. so it's just it's just the, the sort of the, the phrase that means, for, yeah, from the, from the sun. So the, the procession of the spirit is also coming from the sun. So the idea in, here in is- In the Nicene, yeah. like the, yeah. the Orthodox and the Catholics disagree yes. about the wording of the Nicene Creed. Yes. In the Eastern Greek version, the spirit only proceeds from the father. In the Western version, it, the Nicene Creed uh, in Latin has the phrase that the spirit proceeds from the father and from the son and from the son in Latin is filioque. So, yes. so that, yeah, that's what- Exactly, filioque. exactly, yeah. yes. And so what I was saying is that implications sort of for this issue between which reading of the, the creed is, is correct. Obviously there's political and, and you know ecclesiological issues with this, with mm-hmm. papacy and stuff. But let's say we're looking at it a theological way. Uh, this distinction actually helps because um, it can deal with the problem because, okay, let's say you have an Eastern Orthodox who's saying the creed without the filioque, 
that can also be said by a Catholic because the Catholic can just interpret it as yes, when I'm talking about the father being, you know, the spirit coming from the father alone. Yeah. Yes, that's correct, because that's what's affirmed by this view, because he does proceed from the father in one sense alone in that he's e grounded by the father but when i'm saying that the son is sorry the spirit's proceeding from the from the father and the son as it said is in the in sort of the, the catholic church well you can also affirm that as well and say yes well he is but that's not negating what's said in the other creed because that one is referring to the existence of the the, the father and this one is referring to the identity and so what i'm believing that if it's it can be taken in this way is that it can bring this sort of issue or these sort of this discussion to you know to a different it way can because we defang yeah. the issue a little yeah. bit yeah. yeah yeah just because um i think this distinct well i i do believe these relations are true in that they mm. exist and and so why i'm again i just i feel philosophy of religion is very important is because Someone could just say, you're just doing an ad hoc thing to save the filioque. Yeah, you're making up these relations. But what I'm always trying to do is saying, actually, let's go, let's say if I was just an, a secular person studying, you know, metaphysics, what am I going to learn? Well, I'm going to learn about grounding. I'm going to learn about these things existing. Jonathan Schaff is extremely influential, and so is so is E.J. Lowe, uh, Jonathan Lowe. And so their works are highly reputable, and these relations by a lot of philosophers are taking to exist. So if they're taking to exist, and, you know, in a general context, why can't we also see them playing some part in a theological context? And so if it illuminates these theological issues, I think we should go with them. And I think in a way it does. Where I think like there would be pushback um, is saying, did something like the Council of Florence, did they affirm the son actually to stem from the, 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 the sorry, the spirit to stem from the, the son in an e-grounding sense? So, mm -hmm. so, so some um, uh, Orthodox philosophers, uh, that one, one person said to me that he thinks Florence, the way he reads it is that actually there's an e-grounding relation there. There's not an i-grounding. I haven't looked into the issue further, um, but I would say, well, is that true? Because I, I think he, he says, because there's the use of the word subsistence or something like that, uh, that's used. But again, I think interpretation issues, should we say that even though that's the way we interpret Florence, is there a way now to interpret it in a different way? So even though the council might've meant it in that specific way, can we understand it better? As a Catholic, um, I would say we have the mechanism in play to do that, to say our enrichment of our understanding of these terms has developed. So I don't think, you know, anyone in the magisterium is ever going to read any of my works, but, but they, you know, someone well, I become, hope they do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, but I mean, it could be. I, I, we, I would yeah. love it if Bishop Barron or somebody oh, yes, that would yeah. read that. When he yeah. talks about the Trinity, he could be clearer. Well, yes. Just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. But I was just saying that maybe we can come to a better conceptual understanding of these things, given what we have available at the moment. I think someone like Dale Tuggy, and I do affirm what he says here, is that we are in a golden age of philosophy. Um, the golden age is now. I think a lot of analytic philosophy is really helpful for helping theological issues at the moment the existence of god nature of god nature of trinity incarnation all these things can be helped by these notions um it's just sort of delving deep into them and trying to use them yeah, yeah well uh i i think that that's a that's a really relatively good place to maybe mm -hmm. bring this to a close i mm -hmm. i affirm what you're saying and i agree that um i think that there's a lot of interesting things happening there's also just sort of a general spirit of um i don't know uh 
tolerance, I guess, between different church traditions in a way that there hasn't been in a while. Uh, you know, even just like 100 or 200 years ago, I felt like a lot more uh, Protestants and Catholics had a lot more animosity, Orthodox and Catholics had a lot more animosity, and a lot of that just seems to be going away. Christianity has plenty of problems in the contemporary age, but uh, one of, but um, peace and a desire for mutual understanding and dialogue and stuff like that actually seems to be um, on a stronger foot than I than it's been in a long time. Yeah. And so uh, I, while I don't agree with either the Catholics or the Orthodox, all things equal, I'm perfectly in favor of greater peace and uh, unity and mutual understanding. And mm -hmm. I, I think that you're helping move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's Thank appreciated. Thank you. Um, Thank so you do you have any closing remarks or anything else you want to say uh, before we wrap this up? Um, yeah, so generally, yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, It's been great. And uh, your channel is has got great content on there. So I'm, I'm very grateful to be part of it. And yeah, just um, I would just say that for, for this monarchical view, um, I think it's there's a lot of a lot of research I would love for people to, to do more on just because I think um, sometimes I feel like Trinitarian discussions can have this stale, stalemate thing. Um, and I think that's happened for a long period of time. Um, but I just felt with this monarchical view, there's sort of this breath of fresh air that we can have. And we can actually say maybe there's a way to have a bridge with Unitarians and with, you know, with Muslims and other people um, on this issue. And I think monarchical Trinitarianism is sort of fruitful in that sort of sense. Um, mm. And yeah, just the, yeah, that, that's probably the, the, the main thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, there, there are, just to mention, I was saying to you, yeah, the, interestingly, there is a paper, another paper, um, but a paper that I that should be coming out, it's been under review for a very long period of time, um, but it's actually um, doing Trinitarianism without monarchical Trinitarianism. So I tried to deal with the logical problem of the Trinity from a Latin perspective. And I tried to say, actually, is there a way to make sense of the Trinity from a Latin perspective? Um, again, using all of this philosophy stuff. So that paper should be coming out later. So it's just sort of for people. Yeah, yeah it's a bit craziness. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're you're a very impressive person, Josh. I'm, I'm really I'm really grateful that I got to talk to you, and uh, hopefully you we'll talk again. Maybe Thank we can figure maybe definitely. we can figure out whether monarchical trinitarianism is unitarian or not. Uh, that... Great. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be good. <laughs> that'll be good. All right. Um, yeah. Talk to you later. Perfect. Thank you.